Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Welcome to StageCraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars, creators, and industry leaders bringing Broadway back to life. On this episode of StageCraft, I'm talking to Broadway's COVID expert, Dr. Blythe Adamson. An infectious disease epidemiologist and economist, Dr. Adamson is a former member of the White House COVID Task Force, who is currently the dedicated COVID consultant for the first play to get back up and running since the Broadway shutdown, Pass Over. And she's also a special advisor to the COVID-19 theater think tank. She's a consultant on the reopening safety protocols for all sorts of large-scale in-person events, not just theater, but sports, theme parks, universities, and more. With theater reopenings stumbling in London and in Sydney, Dr. Adamson is in the virtual studio with me to talk us through everything Broadway is doing to keep casts, crews, and audiences safe, and everything we can do to try to prevent the surprises and sudden stoppages that we've seen abroad. Hi, Dr. Adamson. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Before we talk about some of the work that you've done in the theater and Broadway recently, I'd like to start with... Before all this, what was your experience with the theater? Did you consider yourself a fan? Oh, such a huge fan. Uh, I grew up in a family that's really art admirers. Uh, you know, my mom is a librarian and my dad has worked in the government my whole life. And, you know, we used to spend vacations going to the Ashland Shakespeare Festival. Um, and, you know, I, my parents love literature and uh, art and museums. And, you know, I, it's such a privilege even to be helping at the August Wilson Theater because growing up, I had seen every single August Wilson play on stage just from you know, having a family that valued this. Yeah, yeah. And so then how did you get involved uh, this time around in terms of uh, connecting with the people who are making theater and trying to get it back up and running? Oh, well, that's an interesting story. So I was... Um, during the pandemic, early in the pandemic, I was on the White House COVID task force on, uh, on hospital resilience uh, and served as the lead data scientist in the West Wing uh, initially. And through that, uh, received many phone calls asking for advice on, on how to reopen businesses and, and different sectors of our economy. 
And so I started thinking through with Disney, how should parks be closed? Should they be open? And then it was Disney who passed my name to the NBA, uh, where I started working with their team and thinking through what, how to create a bubble that would be safe. Uh, and eventually joined the COVID Sports and Society Working Group, where I, as an epidemiologist and economist, help advise all of the major sports leagues. Uh, and it was in this working group that there was always one odd man out who was not involved with sports at all, and that was Matt Ross. Uh, and you know, he, this incredible Broadway producer who just could see um, where people were, or you know, which groups were really leading the way. And he identified sports as being having a lot of parallels, you know, between a court and a stage, um, you know, traveling around for different games or you know, different performances, and then having fans versus patrons uh, in the seats. So that was where where we first met. Right, and it seems to me that although sports and theater share a lot of uh, similarities, it also feels like theater, and in particular Broadway theater, that happens in those you know very particular venues with their cramped little spaces. That there's sort of challenges that are unique to a theater production. Um, that uh, you maybe have not had to deal with in other uh, sectors. Can you tell me a little bit about what those might be? Mm. Well, honestly, every sector has their own unique building challenges. I've helped with the reopening of a lot of K through 12 schools and universities with dorms that are full of roommates, sharing rooms together, sleeping side by side, using the same bathroom or meatpacking plants that have you know, ventilation, basically, that's blowing air down a factory line of workers. So, you know, I really do think that every industry has their own unique set of challenges. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have, um, honestly, parents at my kid's school who work in this industry who helped start to educate me um, uh, on all the challenges to um, implementing CDC guidance that was very general and in all of these gray areas where backstage, you know, there was a lot of intimacy and small spaces between people and, you know, it being really hard to imagine how to operationalize some of the guidances. Yeah. And so how did you begin to imagine that? What, what, was, the, what was the process? Hmm. Well, I remember one long night talking to a stage manager where I would first say, okay, here's the solution that I think will work. Why don't, why, does, why don't they do this? And then she would say, oh, that would never work. That would never work in theater because of X, Y, and Z. And I'd say, okay, okay, let me pitch to you. Uh, and what were the X, totally Y, and Z? Different. Sorry, actually, oh. what were the X, Y, and Z? That Was it about the, the closeness of the spaces or the, or the frequency with which people change costumes or, yeah, or the proximity of people? What, 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 was the, what tended to be the stumbling blocks as you were putting these, these protocols together? Mm. Well, I remember, I didn't realize how long some of these shifts are, you know, mm -hmm. to, to put someone in a KN95 mask for 12 hours um, without a break and not allowing them to eat indoors. Um, you know, those were some of the very, how could someone go 12 hours without eating? I mean, it was, these aren't frontline healthcare workers. Um, so I remember some of those barriers. And mm -hmm. then also talking about dressing rooms, 
you know, right. I, I would say things like, well, just open the windows to the dressing room. And she'd be like, there's no windows in the dressing room. <laughs> you know, it's a tiny, tiny space that they're all cramped together. There's no windows to open. Right. Um, so it was right. challenges like that where, you know, honestly, as an epidemiologist, what we're trying to do are layer together lots of different risk reduction strategies. So there's not one way that everybody should be doing it. It's that we have a lot of different tools that we can layer together. And so working with the stage manager and being, having her help educate me on how people interact in different spaces within a theater, that's where I could propose, okay, how about this combination of things? Okay, that's not going to work. How about this? Com and we would just iteratively go through all equally low, low risk uh, scenarios uh, to, to then find the sweet spot of what might actually work. What things specifically could did you implement in other sectors that could carry over that you found worked well in carrying over to the Broadway model or the sort of theater production model? What were the what were some of those uh, protocols and protections that you found really, really worked well? Hmm. Well, one of the things that we learned right away from uh, from basketball and from sports was that uh, frequent, accurate PCR testing is one of the best ways to quickly identify if someone has become positive. And we can, PCR is so sensitive, we can often pick it up before someone's even infectious and exposes other people. And you know, I take it really seriously, endorsing that there can be people on a stage singing and performing that don't put each other or an audience at risk. And one of the big ways that we can make sure that 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 is an okay, safe, situ low risk situation is through you know frequent PCR testing, so that if someone pops positive, we know right away we can you know diagnose it, contain it, and make sure that it doesn't spread to other people. And I would say that's one of our most powerful tools. Right. Yeah. And is there? I, I'm I'm trying to figure out a way to ask that. Is there something you uh, specific to the way theater productions uh, are put together that? were actually helpful as you figured out uh, figured out these these protections and protocols. Was it like, oh, because Broadway or a theater or a theater production does this, we can make this one thing happen uh, in a way that is uh, smoother than it might happen in other sectors. Oh, well, one of my favorite things mm -hmm. compared to, you know, I do a lot of um, you know, office reopenings and right mm -hmm. now in the pandemic, a lot of people are only working a couple days a week. Um, and so it's hard to get everyone together all at the same time to collect specimens or to, you know, give a really meaningful talk about how we want how we want to wear masks or how we want to behave to protect each other. And I really love that a lot of people in theater, they show up every single day. I mean, six days a week, you know, yep. they're like I can I can show up, you know, at the August Wilson at at, you know, 745 and every single person is there almost. I mean, there are a few few roles that maybe they do a couple nights at this theater, a couple nights at the other, but that makes it honestly much easier logistically to, to implement things like, okay, let's just everybody spit in a tube during this like one hour time period. And then it allows these operational efficiencies because then we can just, we've got one big bucket full of tubes of spit that we can send over to the lab all together um, and get results back just within a few hours. Mm. And, you know, people who come from jobs like being a stage manager are so right. qualified for managing 
all of the people involved in knowing who who is supposed to be where at what time and what their role is, that it actually makes it much easier. If a contact tracing investigation was needed, they already intuitively know and are great at keeping documentation that's necessary, which is a wonderful tool to me. So I really work hand in hand with you know, the, so I'm describing a role, which we call the COVID safety manager. Right. Um, and that's really, and it's a full-time separate job than a stage manager, but I, I'm describing it as like being, having been a stage manager makes someone very qualified if they are able to receive, you know, the supplemental scientific training uh, and how to do it. Yeah, I think a lot of us, uh, even early on in the pandemic, thought, well, let's just have a stage manager manage all this because they know how to do it. Like they know how to how to yeah. keep us all in line and follow all the all the um, protocols. Um, and so let's talk a little bit more about kind of what the protocols that you and the producers of Passover came up with. It's an approach that sort of airs on the side of caution, it seems to me, in a, in a good way, in a uh, in a way that. Um, you know, goes a little above and beyond kind of what CDC guidance and other kind of uh, regulations are. Tell us a little bit about kind of how you how you threaded that needle. Oh, well, you know, I'm both an epidemiologist and an economist. So mm. I think about the resources required to do something and the return on investment from, you know, the way you spend your money and your time in trying to prevent COVID. And, you know, we could do the bare minimum and probably have an outbreak. Right. Uh, in the cast. So what are the consequences of the bare minimum? You know, all of the, you know, revenue lost from canceled shows. And when we think about how to weigh the trade-offs, you really can lay out how much do we need to spend on, well, first, we, let's just mandate vaccination. Everyone should be vaccinated, first of all. Then how much should we spend on, you know, supplemental air filters to, and, you know, help the air be clean in all these backstage places? How much should we spend on masks, just the cheapest kind, or should we get really high quality KN95 masks that will really filter out the virus and give us that extra protection? How much do we want to spend on testing? And when you weigh all that out on a weekly and monthly basis on how many, I mean, it's helpful for me to be a forecaster because I can make predictions about how many shows someone might have canceled um, if they do the bare minimum. Um, then it's easier to see, okay, if we were maybe gonna have 10 nights canceled, doing the bare minimum. But if we invest this much in prevention, maybe we only have one show canceled that was out of our control. And then it's easier to see like, okay, well, the incremental benefit is nine shows not having to be canceled. What's the revenue from that? Is that worth the investment, the financial investment in the prevention techniques that we want to be using? You know, that's just the money side of it, which is important yeah. to because the, the people who have the money are motivated by how the money is spent. But you know, really at the end of the day, we care about people's health. You know, we want them to be well. We don't want people to be at risk or feel sick, you know, or bring this home to their families. So there's this human side of it too. That is, you know, we care for our people. We value our employees. Um, and I think that you have to work both sides of it. I'll have more with Dr. Adamson right after the break. And now here's more with COVID safety expert, Dr. Blythe Adamson. And so what, in addition to CDC guidance, what other sources uh, are of information were sort of involved in figuring out 
uh, what your approach was going to be? Oh, well, I mean, it helps that, you know, my background is in infectious diseases and virology. And so we're just using a lot of pure scientific evidence and papers to to cobble together what we expect viral load dynamics to look like. If someone is exposed on this day, what day might they uh, become, be most infectious? How could we you know, stop that from happening where after an exposure, we've, we've mitigated the risk that they then three days later are infectious and unaware. Um, so there's, yeah, I mean, I think that it's incredible to see Passover, the whole team be, willing and ready to learn whatever the latest science is saying, you know, that yeah. if vaccinated breakthroughs are going to happen, what's the policy that we need to, to have to be able to catch it or, and can vaccinated breakthroughs pass it on to other people? Yeah. Of those studies that you were talking about, uh, were there any, I know that there have been studies or at least that there's been data accumulated from performances that were, you know, running during full pandemic and like, Korea, for instance, and uh, you know, the, I know there have also been studies in sort of uh, in Europe and the UK, or, or at least a sort of trial runs of uh, of performing uh, with social distance or without social distance. Was there any? Is there any insight from abroad, in particular, that uh, was really informative for how you all decided to do things at Passover? Hmm. That's a that's very insightful. I love learning from other countries' experiences, what's working well, what's not working well, and how can we incorporate that? Uh, I would say a big takeaway is your policies, your safety policies can't be rigid. You know, you should have the agility to, and expectation that they should be changing over time as you're learning more, but also as the prevalence in the community is changing. So when we look at, you know, outbreaks in Korea and traveling casts, we have to acknowledge what, how much virus was there in the community that someone was just likely to be exposed in that setting. Um, and, you know, I think that in the casts that, that I'm able to work with, they know that, you know, we are paying attention and you, know, you don't need to panic if all of a sudden I say, we're going to increase testing to every day. You know, there could be lots of reasons why that might happen. And some of it might just be you know, there's been a recent exposure, someone from outside maybe came in and I, I just want to really make sure that everyone is okay. Or it could be that, you know, infections are rising in our community. And it's maybe it's just more likely that it could, ha you know, you could become infected at a barbecue in the park. Um, and so I think that from other countries, we can learn that there's a lot we can't control outside of the theater that we still have to be paying attention to and responding to. And how have your your practices changed just even during the uh, rehearsal and now these sort of early days of performances for Passover? Have they at all? We've uh, we've flexed the frequency that we use individual PCR testing um, mm -hmm. during. You know, I'd say an, one example would be the transition from rehearsal space into the theater. Um, that by itself is, is a good reason to be able to just more closely monitor the situation. But from the beginning, we, I mean, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, is that because they're going for to, from a much more closed space to a space that, uh, is just including more people in it? 
Is that the that's great. Part yeah, of the reasoning? Great, great intuition. Yeah. I mean, now yeah. they're mixing with way more people within the theater. Uh, and yeah. it's easier to feel confident when you've got a very small group of people and they only see each other. But then once you move into the larger theater and there's a lot more visitors coming in, I think visitors right. have been one of the biggest challenges of what to do for safety policies, because it's really easy to figure out the right thing to do for people who show up every day. You know, who I know they're negative because two days ago I tested them and they're negative. But when you have a visitor or press come in, you know, someone who's just going to come in that one time, it's much harder because it takes a lot more advanced planning than it ever did before the pandemic. Um, and, you know, most of the rapid tests are, you know, just like flipping a coin. I mean, they're not accurate at all. Uh, the lateral flow, you know, the strip test ones. Yeah. And so it, it takes advanced planning, negative PCR tests to be able to even like walk, get past our, our COVID safety manager who's who's guarding and protecting these people. Right. Yeah. Um, I interrupted you. You were you were discussing some of the ways, some of the things that uh, you talked about, I guess, the uh, the frequency of the PCR testing went up as they moved into the theater. Is that what you is that what you were saying? Oh, yes. Yep, yeah. it did. And then we had to to adjust because in a rehearsal space, we'll have one design of ways that we enhance ventilation and filtration of clean air to make the rehearsal space safe mm. for removing a mask. Um, and then in the theater, it requires that adaptation to making sure that there's appropriate uh, ventilation and filtration enhancements in every single backstage area that could be a vulnerability. Yeah. And just as... Uh... Broadway and Passover performances were just starting to gear up. There were a couple of uh, kind of high profile setbacks, or at least high profile to Broadway folks, uh, setbacks overseas of shows. You know, there was an Andrew Lloyd Webber production of the new Andrew Lloyd Webber Cinderella sort of shut down unexpectedly because there, uh, you know, because one of the actors uh, was tested positive or someone in the company tested positive. And then meanwhile, in Sydney, performances had been up and running. And then there was a lockdown that sort of halted uh, all sorts of uh, performances. How much should setbacks like those concern people in New York, either either on the theater maker side or on the sort of audience side? Hmm. Well, you know, the policies in every country are different. And so you could have identical outbreaks in theaters, but in different countries would have to handle them differently because of, you know, whatever the guidances are in that country. So in the UK at the time of that Cinderella case, uh, there was a policy that if you are exposed, you must quarantine for a certain number of days and you know be by yourself. And I say when I say quarantine, I mean that's what we do when we're by ourselves after being exposed. But after if you test positive, that's and then you go be by yourself. That's not quarantine. I call that self isolation. So, but in the United States, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to quarantine after an exposure, based on the theory that it's less likely that you had become infected. So in the UK, it was a really tough situation because for everyone to be exposed meant that everyone would need to quarantine. Whereas in the US, we would have the, the freedom to be able to kind of test our way out of that, where you can still keep coming to work, but we need to keep a very close eye to detect as soon as possible if anyone were to become positive. Um, and that's where my role uh, doing case investigations is useful because if two people were to test positive you know, uh, close in time, mm -hmm. then I come in to do an investigation to say, are they related or unrelated to each other? Are these both from the community and random, 
or did one person pass it to another in the theater? And that's where we can use sequencing for me to be able to just oh. look at the viruses to say, yeah. okay, these viruses are almost identical. These two people, probably one probably passed it to another. Or we can say, these, given all of the viruses that we see in New York City, you know, this week, these two are really different from each other. And so even though there's two cases in the theater at the same time, you know, I'm pretty confident that they both got them from different places outside of the theater. Um, so those are ways that we can use, you know, for, it takes a, a few weeks to be able to do to do that. So it's not necessarily right. helpful for the, individ, the the poor people who got infected, but it is helpful in revealing weaknesses in our protocols. So if we yeah. did see two cases that are related, then all of a sudden I need to go back to the drawing board because something in my policies are not is not working to keep these people from keep them safe when they're in the workplace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the one of my favorite stories that was uh, told to me as I was talking to some of the folks from Passover was that uh, you came into rehearsal one day and you played kind of a kind of a board game, like a kind of a kind of a simulation of uh, of things that could happen. You ran basically a simulation of things that could happen during a run of performances, and then how they would be dealt with and what the repercussions, what the simulated repercussions on those yeah. simulated performances would be. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what those variables were and how they, how that ended up playing out in that simulation? Oh, yeah. I mean, this shouldn't surprise you. I mean, I'm a professor, I'm a professor and a mom. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just doing really dorky teaching tool activities. And I thought, oh, they'll be up for it for role playing. They're actors. Right. Um, so, you know, I think that it's really hard to to know which test to take at what point in time. You know, we have to make so many decisions related to the pandemic of like, I want to do this risky thing, but I want to be sure I'm negative first, or I feel exhausted today and I have a headache. Should I actually go into work or should I stay home? You know, or like, I don't know, there, there's just so many different reasons why and often there's a different type of test that COVID test we might want to take to inform those different decisions. Because, I mean, COVID tests can take a different amount of time to get the result. So if you're, you might need to know sooner than, you know, 24 hours from now, what the answer is. And sometimes you really want to be accurate and sometimes being accurate doesn't matter as much. Um, and so, yeah, I came up with this really dorky board game um, <laughs> that that I made everyone play and draw cards. But, you know, really it was if if we were trying to do 10 shows and go on every single night, given the 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 cast and the understudies and I'd even because I, I you know, do a lot of math, I even fill the cards with what you would randomly draw was the real probability of getting that positive re test result. And so yeah. the antigen tests were a ton of false positives and the PCR you know, had fewer number of true positives, um, but it allowed us to map it out and say, yeah, we, we could make it at this rate, we could you know, make it through all the shows that having a positive case doesn't mean that you know, we have to close everything. Um, mm. We can't control what happens in the community or in someone's household. Um, the best that we can do is, you know, catch it quickly and prevent it from spreading to anyone else in the theater. And those, from what I understand, those simulated performance, that simulated runner performance as those 10, none of all of those performances happened. Do you, the, the protections, the, 
were in place. They did. Was there a version? Could it have played out where there could have had to, you know, cancel a performance? And what what are the variables that would could contribute to that? Yeah, I I we I even highlighted it at the end. You know, there's a way I can tinker with the game, the rules of the game, not even rules, but um, what I do is in the basket where you draw out PCR results, I start adding more and more red cards. So there's a higher and higher likelihood that everybody is just that somebody might randomly test positive. And that's the parallel of what we saw in Korea. Of the, the prevalence in the community is increasing and increasing. Mm -hmm. So even with the, using the same protocols, it's much more likely that, you know, a, the, all within a certain amount of time when you know, enough people are still in isolation. Um, but I think it's really important to randomly draw results like that. Also, so we don't shame people who do, you know, get COVID. You know, it, it doesn't mean like it was their fault or necessarily that they had risky behavior. I mean, this can pass so easily uh, that most people have no idea where they even caught it from. Um, but I think that it really prepared the cast to feel like they knew what to expect if there was a positive and mm -hmm. that, you know, that they didn't need to panic because they knew, okay, if I became positive, I'm gonna have to sit out for a little bit and I'll be able to come back in after a time, you know, that, that I think there was that reassurance of, um, you know, that, yeah, I, I really think a lot about how I want them to feel if someone were to become positive. And it's that, you know, we support you, we're with you, we've got a plan, we know, who, we've got a phone tree of how it gets communicated and who knows what part. Um, and I think that it gave everyone the, the, I would also say intuition because so many things that both cast and the crew, everyone in the theater, you have to make a lot of judgment calls. Is it safe or not safe? Should I take a PCR? Should I take a rapid? Uh, and, you know, it's really fun to help educate a cast into being able to make really good decisions on their own so they don't even need me anymore. Right, yeah. And how specifically has the uh, relatively recent rise of the Delta variant shifted the way you approach what you're doing with the show and you're thinking about how theater should proceed overall as it reopens? Hmm. I would say the biggest, the, the only change to our policy with the Delta variant uh, was uh, enforcing, was mandating masks among the audience members. I think in the summertime, we still thought, well, you know, may, I had proposed, what if we just wore masks in the lobby area, but then once you find your seat, then you could take your mask off, you know, just so that to help the audience feel comfortable. And then you're only really breathing around a few people without your mask on versus mixing and being in the crowds at entry, that'd be unmasked around a lot of people. Um, yet just erring to the side of caution as Delta was increasing, I think it was the right call to just have everyone in the audience wear a mask. Um, but our safety plan has really been designed on, on an understanding of um, that, I would say this first, well before rehearsals, understanding that vaccinated people still can become infected, that they still can be infectious and transmitted to other people, though likely for a much shorter amount of time. Whereas before, maybe it was five days a week that you could pass it to other people if you're unvaccinated. It might only be, you know, one or two days. 
that that someone who's vaccinated could pass it on to other people. And so, you know, I really do think that our the the protocols that we have set up, which is, you know, vaccination, ventilation, testing and masking, um, that the Delta variant has has not changed uh, any of the, the the tools or protocols that we have for keeping them safe. Yeah. And what have you learned? You we were talking about the simulated performances from the board game, mm -hmm. but now you have actual performances uh, that you can see watch audience behavior in. Uh, you know, we're talking a little more than a week after um, uh, after Passover began uh, previews. And so what have you learned just from the real world experience that maybe you didn't expect? Hmm. Well, I think that we we're also expecting right now that the flu season is going to be pretty bad and that RSV is going around. There are other viruses going around and it's going to be hard to distinguish. Is this, is this COVID or is this a different virus? And if it's a different virus, if I don't feel well, you know, should I go home or I'm just a little congested, but I could still perform, you know? And so I think that just in the first few weeks, I've learned that sometimes you just need a full respiratory panel. Um, and so hooking up Passover with a source where we can just get some rapid test results, uh, not rap, I mean, within a few, within a few hours, identify if someone has RSV or influenza or Delta variant. Um, so, so how we deal with people who develop symptoms while they're at work is, um, is a pressing need. Yeah. And what, broadly speaking, are the things that you wish more people knew regarding sort of COVID safety and maybe how COVID has passed from one person to another in indoor events like the theater? You know, I, part of it's what I mentioned before. I think there's a great return on investment in uh, protecting people. Uh, and, you know, you're going to win in the long run by being able to be more productive for longer, not having to cancel shows. Um, but I would say really that, you know, code passes so quickly between people. You know, if you're exposed, you might be at your peak infectiousness two or three days later. So if you're only testing once a week, you could go through a couple cycles of an outbreak of exponential growth before you even test again. And I think that that's what scares me, um, yeah. a little bit of, you know, all of a sudden you've got one case this week. And if you don't wait, if you wait all, a week, you might have, you know, 10 cases um, the ne by the next time you test. Um, and so I think that how long we think the expiration date is of how long a test result is good for um, is really important. And, you know, I only consider antigen tests as being okay for, you know, like 12 hours. I mean, I, I don't even let people use antigen results from yesterday to get in today. Um, really, we rely, we're relying on um, accurate PCR tests. Right, right. And, oh, sorry, yeah, there was one more really important thing to say. Yeah, please. Um, it doesn't have to be really expensive to do mm. either. Um, there are really cost-effective solutions available, like pooled testing is something we're using on Passover. And so we basically run one test with 20 people's spit combined into one. <laughs> so it's much more cost effective uh, and actually creates this additional protection of privacy um, for the casting crew. And it allows us to test at that frequency. So you can imagine that 
when we do pool testing of up to 24 people per pool, we could be testing every six days a week for cheaper than what other groups are doing one day a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there are solutions that, that make it possible. And the pool solution, just to clarify, as I understand it, they, if there, if a, if a positive is detected in the sort of, I don't know, the, 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 the group spittoon, then, uh, <laughs> then the, um, it can be sort of narrowed down then from there in terms of individualizing or figuring out which, which individual the positive came from or individuals. Exactly. Yep. Everybody turns in their own tube by themselves. And then in the lab, they'll draw out part of that, but they'll mm. keep some left over. Right, and so right. if a pool of people is positive, then you can they can go back really quickly and find out who within that group right. was right. was the individual that was positive. Yeah. And what would you say to theater goers who are or maybe theater lovers who haven't yet decided if they're yet ready to be theater goers right now, who are deciding whether they feel safe and when they might feel safe? What what are the factors that you feel like might uh, convince them or that might sort of put them put them at ease as they're just trying to weigh when they should, you know, get back into the theater again? Hmm. Well, everyone will make their own personal decision. Everyone has different risk thresholds and tolerances. So we do have to be respectful of everyone's choices. Um, but I would say that, you know, we want revitalization of New York City. You know, we want to bring businesses back and arts and culture back. And we've got the tools available. And so, you know, I would say book a dinner at a, a place where you can eat outdoors with your friends, because we know that that we want these restaurants to come back as well. And being outdoors is a great way to eat with other people and to enjoy arts and theater uh, where you're indoors, you know, wear a mask. KN95s are a great solution um, that well-fitted for people who are not very comfortable with them. There's even, you know, 99 cent um, strap adjusters that can like make it more comfortable to wear. So, you know, again, I don't think that the, it's very complicated what the solutions are. It's more like, here's something that I want to do. I want to have dinner with my friends. How can I do it safely? Let's do it outdoors and support this local business. I want to go to the theater. How can I do it safely? I'll wear a mask and be vaccinated and be sure that, you know, I could be confident that it's much less likely someone in this theater is infectious right now because we've, everyone to be here had to show proof of their documentation of vaccination status. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for uh, all your insights as uh, we all start to head back to the, to the theater these days. Uh, Dr. Adamson, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I hope that you enjoy Passover and feel safe when you come see it. That was Dr. Blythe Adamson, the COVID safety expert who's helping to make sure Broadway reopens safely and smoothly. If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of StageCraft, I'd really appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us grow our audience of folks who love theater as much as you and I do. Or tell a friend about StageCraft. Find past episodes or subscribe on all the pod places, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on the Broadway Podcast Network, a great place to find more theater for your ears. I'll be back in two weeks with another new episode. Until then, find me on Twitter at GCoxVariety. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.
Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 